I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, this is John Lewis, and you're listening to Rebel Radio, coming at you from the dirty and dangerous streets of Los Angeles, California. Fuck you, Josh. Fuck you. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh? Rebel Radio is going down. What do you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. We talk about how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine. Check it out, y'all. It's Grammy week. If you're in L.A., it's party after party. I know you're probably turned up and uh, listening to this with a hangover. Um... We got an interesting guest this week. My man, John Lewis, came through the studios. Um, you know, John's not a typical kind of guest that we would have. Actually, when they called me about him, I thought he was, uh, I thought he was the civil rights pioneer who marched on Selma with Dr. King. Happy Martin Luther King Day to everybody listening. Uh, but he's not that John Lewis. John is a really interesting guy that I got to know on the mic uh, for all of you. He, he's, um, you know, you might describe him as kind of a corporate guy. He's worked at Nike. He's worked at Burton. He's had big marketing jobs. Um, but he's definitely not a corporate guy once you dig under the uh, surface with him. He's also an entrepreneur building a coffee brand. What I really liked about John is John is passionate about motorcycles. Um, not just uh, that he likes to ride them. He wants you to ride them. And he uses his voice on social media, on Medium, to uh, talk about riding motorcycles, talk about the motorcycle industry, to educate, persuade. He's doing all the things that uh, we want somebody to do to bring their passions to life. And we got some great lessons from him coming up on the show. Let's get into it right after the EDM.com track of the week. Yeah. 
That was Strybo with Plan, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to the EDM.com, check out more new music. And right now, let's get into the interview with John Lewis. Your every 20-minute thoughts, what's one that comes up? Well, um, I didn't realize you going to be asking me so many questions today. <laughs> I don't have to. We can, we can just... We well, can it's meditate. Funny. It's funny. I'm I'm terrible at that too. Um, I well here well this I'm not even going to try and answer that question, but I'll answer it by not answering it. I in a job interview once somebody asked me like what is what you know what is the job you really wanted to have in this world like what is the one thing you uh -huh. really wanted to do yeah and uh, you know I'm like a Jewish kid from upstate New York. I wanted to, my entire life I've always wanted to be a professional soccer player. Oh wow! I remember reading opening up Sports Illustrated. And uh, there, you know, there was no, there, you know, there were no athletes for you to look up to when you were a kid. If, if you were a soccer athlete, right? I mean, right. There's no MLS. Yeah, yeah. Pele. Uh, Pele. Right. That was it. Sure. So I went to soccer camp at Cornell University, and they opened up every single camp with like this 30-minute Pele video that was paid for by Pepsi. I actually found them on YouTube recently. Yeah. And I just remember just, like, you know, and you know, it all talked about in Brazil. We we are all about football, and I'm like. I grew up in a household where my dad watched the Giants, you know, and I always wanted to be a soccer player. I played youth soccer, and I, I decided that when I was in high school that I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Um, nice. That didn't exactly happen for me. Yeah. First of all, I wasn't that great. Um, I played in college a little bit. Uh, that didn't work out very well for me either. Um, <laughs> this is like, this is a really inspiring talk about where all the places I failed. If this, by the way, if this were a podcast about failure, and I will talk a lot about failure today, I sure. am masterful uh, at swinging the bat and going down, you know, going down and swinging. Like, I think failure is like one of the most important things you can do as you go through this, you know, this process that we call life. I have, well, I, I definitely want to talk about that because I think yeah. it's, you know, it's on everyone's minds. We yeah. have this, there's this narrative right now in, in you know, society about failure and you know what it means and, and learning and you know sometimes I wonder like how much is that really changing people's attitudes um, well our entire culture now is is defined by people's success mm -hmm. you know? exactly you're 20 whatever years old everyone call, everyone calls himself an entrepreneur this is a podcast about being an entrepreneur so you know this yeah. probably better than anybody um, uh, the kids all need to have a you know four million dollar valuation before they even like figure out like what product they even have. Right. And um, uh, you know it seems like if you don't know what to do with yourself or what to call your life, you just call yourself an entrepreneur. Sure. And um, I've have entrepreneur. We'll talk about a lot of that entrepreneuring stuff that I that I've done. And you know you're making up so much stuff as you go along. You really have to have 
big fucking stones to be a, to be an entrepreneur. You know, the the role that sort of even brought me in here today to talk about part of what we'll, we'll get into is, you know, I'm in a non-entrepreneurial role at the moment that is highly entrepreneurial. Mm. You know, um, meaning I get you know I, I'm a, I have a paid salary by a company sure. to come in and figure shit out. Right. Um, I'm really good at doing that. You know, so I don't mind taking taking the money and taking the time to like help out other brands and other people. Mm -hmm. um, but I won't do it. I mean, like I worked at Nike for a bunch of years and you know, I'm not gonna sit here and slam a $28 billion company, but there's not, there's not, there's not one person that sits in that desk at that company that has one entrepreneurial cell in their body, you know, because you work at Nike, right? right. And you could take a, you sure. could take a bag of glass and put a swoosh on it. They'll probably sell a couple million of them. I you imagine know? they have. Probably, <laughs> probably with Supreme. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And like actually, that's a perfect example. When Supreme did that brick about yeah. a couple of years ago, yeah. everyone was like taking a swipe at him. I'm like, this is like the best idea I've ever heard. Where these guys are actually sort of like taking the piss out of themselves now. You know. Sure. Um, all right, but we're talking about on being an entrepreneur. Um, but it, it it feels to me like. Um, it feels to me like the, the spirit of being an entrepreneur has been completely whitewashed in, in our sort of 21st century uh, digital, uh, you know, mo millennial, whatever. What are, what are all the, the, the modifying adjectives you'd throw into our, our current culture? Mm -hmm. it's, it seems like it's, um, it, it's, made, it, it's, made glam it's made very glamorous, you know? Sure. I just read, uh, I, I, have you read Phil Knight's book? Or, you know, I'm sure you oh, know Shoe Dog? Yeah. Yeah. You read that one? Yeah. yeah. So you don't even have any idea how many times that guy like almost shot the bed with that company. Yeah. Uh, I worked there for a bunch of years. As you walk into the main entrance of Nike, there's a, um, this beautiful like, sort of like Japanese rock water garden and the rocks represent the rocky path of the start of the company. And I'm like, oh, what a great story. And then I'd walk over it every day, going to my you know, desk with my salary job and my 401k and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, hadn't, I mean, I knew what Phil had done, but I had no idea no fucking clue how many times that guy almost flamed out and crashed yeah. that company. And what's also really interesting about it too is that um, Del Hayes was one of the founders of the company. I know a lot about it having worked there and they kind of brainwash you when you first get there. Sure. Del Hayes is one of the founders as was Phil and this guy named Rob Strasser. Rob Strasser really was kind of the architect of the marketing of that company. Mm -hmm. And forget about Phil. Phil was just a crummy long distance runner. but. Both Del Hayes, who's I think the, the accounting mind, and Rob Strasser were both obese, yeah. non-athletic guys. And they had to make so many decisions. They had to make a decision, do we sign, if you can even believe this, do we put all of our marketing dollars behind the center named Patrick Ewing, or do we put all of our marketing dollars behind this third round draft pick, Michael Jordan? Mm -hmm. I think I'm getting the numbers right here, but there were two guys picked before Jordan that year. Ralph Sampson right. from UVA. Yep. I forget the other guy. Uh, I wish I knew it would help the story. And then obviously Jordan. Yeah. And the rest we don't even we don't I mean, we. Ralph Sampson had a great career, but sure. let's be honest, I couldn't even I can't even tell you the number two guy is. Right. You know. So that was just really fascinating to me. Like you think, oh, Phil made some shoes and he sold five, then he sold thousand, then he sold twenty million. But man, like you know, he made. By the way, he still lives in the same house mm -hmm. that that he bought when he first started Nike, which is also sort of an interesting story. Um, but he made some gut-wrenching decisions that could have gone any number of ways at that time on top of the fact that Adidas <laughs> had like a nice whatever 20 or 30 year head start on him and sure. you know was the premier sports brand at that time.
And uh, anyway, I mean, I also can also talk for an entire two hours about like just the culture of working in a place like that. It's absolutely fascinating place. But what's also really interesting to note is like, you know, Nike has like this sort of huge cool factor on it. Mm -hmm. About 98% of the people who work in that company, I would say, aren't like the coolest people you've ever met. It's just a well-organized machine. It's the start of a new year, and I'm excited to welcome a new sponsor to our show. I want you to check out Future. If y'all know me, you know I love to work out. That's why I'm so yoked. Uh, but I stay working out. I, every day I do something. I do yoga, I'm in the gym, I ride a bike, I play tennis, I do what I can. That's the best I can do. Uh, and I've never used a trainer until now. I've always kind of just done my own thing and, you know, struggle through it, figure it out. I'm researching online, whatever. It's okay. It's gotten me this far, but it's time to step it up for the new year. So I'm using Future. Future pairs you up with one of their world-class trainers and the coaches create a personalized workout plan tailored specifically to your schedule, your goals, track your progress. The coach checks in with you every day to keep you on track, sending texts making adjustments to the routine and following your progress through the Apple Watch. If you don't have an Apple Watch, it's all good. When you sign up to train with Future, they're gonna send you one. Don't overpay for a trainer, get the workouts you need and meet your fitness goals. Let's do it in 2020. Take your trainer with you wherever you go with Future. Right now, you can sign up for Future at tryfuture.com rebel and get 50% off your first month. That's tryfuture.com slash rebel for 50% off your first month. Tryfuture.com slash rebel. So let's talk about that for a minute. How does, you know, from the outside, yeah. right? Nike's a cool brand. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, you know, they could not be more relevant to urban America and the, the you know, all of the various subcultures that are happening. Um, but yeah, they're they're a big white company from Oregon, uh, filled with a, a bunch of people who, as you say, are not entrepreneurs. They're not necessarily cool, um, and that runs counter to a lot of assumptions. Yeah, about how yeah. how we think about uh, how success is achieved. Yeah. Um, so what is it? How do they? Yeah. What's the secret? Yeah, that's funny. If if so, I get I'm a consultant by trade. I get hired. I would say eight times out of 10, people hire me and bring me in to answer that exact question mm -hmm. and basically to sprinkle that. Well, tell us for free. <laughs> I'll tell you for free. Um, there's a couple things at play uh, on that. And first of all, uh, you're right. Uh, you know, if you look at, I don't know what percentage wise, how, what the, what, you know, what, how many, what the percentage of people of color are in that company. And yes, it's a, it, it, there is a wide swath. Of I think people. I know both of them. You do? You know those numbers? No, both of the people of color. Oh, you do? You, know, you have two friends that work there? <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a lot of play there. Uh, first of all, I would say, uh, and this is, I mean, this is sort of a long-winded answer to a pretty simple question. The first thing that is at play there is what I define as the most amazing thing that I took away from my, you know, four or five years there is the relationship between Nike and Wyden Kennedy. Mm. So you probably, being that you're sort of in the, in the music industry, I guess you're familiar with Wyden Kennedy or sure. know of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
Whiting Kennedy was founded just by two white guys from Oregon. That's right. not really a very interesting story. Um, when they started the, the agency, Dan Wyden actually hired people to come in and just like type on typewriters and stuff to show Phil Knight that they actually had clients. They had none, sure. you know, and I love yeah. those kind of stories. Um, and what's really interesting about that relationship is um, people always think that Nike's success, um, and yeah, Nike's success is found in the fact that they make some pretty amazing product and we can go into like, what, what is behind the Air Force One and what is behind the air foam posit and all the technology and innovation and when they launched shocks and how much went into that, like, it's nuts. And I could, again, fill this whole room and add two, to two hours of your life talking about that. But to me, it all comes back to the relationship between those two entities, between Phil Knight, essentially, and, and Dan Wyden of, mm -hmm. of Wyden and Kennedy. And I always found it really interesting when, you know, in the marketing world, everyone thinks that, well, you take a piece of paper that's empty and you write words on it and that's called a brief and if you're good at it you keep it to one piece of paper yep. and you hand it to a bunch of smart agency people and they take that brief and they go back and they sit on it or in the case of Wyden County probably smoked it I would guess um, and they come back and they just spit out like you give me a brief like all right what do we do with World Cup soccer we need a big World Cup soccer idea and we here are athletes and here's a strategy you know, like one strategy one year was, you know, this is for the Olympics, was sport is war minus the killing, mm. right? Give us, give us an ad campaign based on that simple philosophy. And then the agency comes back and they'll present you four or five ideas. One is just more brilliant than the next. And the part that happens on that side of the wall, like what does Dan Wyden do to in, inspire these group of people? How does a... And I will also say, like, probably the most diverse group of people you've, I've ever encountered in professional work environment is, was Wyden and Kennedy. So I would say yeah. one part of that success is that as white as Nike may seem, <coughs> something we were just talking about a second ago, I would say the opposite about the, the brands or the companies that attach themselves to mm -hmm. Nike. So then you sit in this room and, and the agency spits out five ideas, one better than the next. And um, at the end of the meeting... It's like, okay, you know, we have to think about it. Because that's what you do when you're the client. You have to sure. think about things. It's really nice. Agency comes in, you drink a lot of coffee, and then you go back to your desk, and then you have meetings. Or at Nike, there's a big culture of, you know, sports. You'd go yeah. for a run, you'd play soccer at lunch, and you'd talk about stuff. But then at the end of the meeting, someone from Wyden and Kennedy would say, um, there's just one guy named Chuck McBride, mm -hmm. who works for an agency called Cutwater now. And Chuck was the king of doing this. He's like, hey, man, you got a second? You're like, yeah, what's up? He's like, I keep thinking about this idea. And I know it's not, a, well, you didn't ask us for this. It's, you didn't give us a brief, but, you know, I just keep thinking about this, the soccer idea that I have. And I'm like, well, what is it? And so he would pitch you this idea. This idea in particular he wanted to pitch was a kid who takes a soccer ball and then takes like a steak and then sort of squeezes a steak out over the soccer ball and then gives it to and like sort of holds it in front of this dog's nose and he starts dribbling the ball while the dog's trying to get the ball. I mean, it's a pretty mm -hmm. simple idea, right? Mm -hmm. And no, I guess he had pitched it to someone else. They didn't like it. He was looking for someone, an advocate, within the, to sort of push this idea through. And so he chose me. And so to me, that was always like sort of the beauty of that relationship. And to answer your question, like why it was so successful, is that they are constantly thinking. They, Wine and Kenny, were always thinking about like how, like the, you know, their 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 mantra was, "It's all about the work." what is the biggest possible idea? And, and, and as simple or as complex as that idea must be, how can we as simply and efficiently 
communicate this without just, just getting past all the bullshit. And so part of getting past all the bullshit was to pick someone. I don't know if it was an advocate or maybe in my case, the weak link, like take, take your pick yeah. of someone who would be like, yes, that is such a fucking good idea. And that ad actually ended up getting made. Yeah. And it didn't get made because I jumped up and down, but I did. And I took it to another person. And then I, there's a guy at the time named Tommy Kane who was running Nike Sports Marketing. I'm like, Tommy, we got to do this. And we were playing soccer one day and I showed it to him. He's like, oh yeah, we got to do that. And that's how mm -hmm. the good work got done. It wasn't a ton of meetings. It was all about, it, it, like I said, it comes back to that relationship. Like, I don't know how it started with Dan and Phil Knight, but whatever, 20 or 30 years later, that I am sitting with this guy, Chuck, and we're trying to figure out, like, how do we get the best ideas to the top? And when you get hired by another company and they always want you, and I tell them that story, and they're probably in the same way any of the listeners are listening to this story, or maybe even you, you're like, that's, that's the secret. The best ideas get made. That's it. But it's the process of getting it made. And it's, the, and it's those, the, like that tissue, that sort of connective tissue of, of, of between you and the agency that was like, it's so unique. And if you've ever worked around Wyden and Kennedy, they're a very, very, um, you know, there's some really amazing creative people there. But as Dan mm -hmm. will tell you, they're also the most insecure people on the planet, the creatives in, sure. in ad agencies, you know. Yeah. There's one guy in particular named uh, Jim Riswold who has since retired. He now is an artist. Mm. And um, he gave a speech at one of our conferences once. It was the most fascinating talk I think I've ever, I've actually done it for other people before. And I wrote him a note saying, hey, I have to go speak. I speak at Loyola Marymount sometimes. A friend of mine's a marketing professor there. Cool. And uh, I said to Riswold, hey, can I borrow that speech? And like, like it's my own, <laughs> go and give it. And he, it's a great story. Oh, that's cool. Um, that he told about, he made an ad. It was a, basically like a tennis ad of Instant Karma, using the John Lennon song, Instant Karma. And the ad ran during uh, a tennis match. And when, after the ad ran, everyone was like sending emails to Nike, and mostly it all gets directed at Nike, not so much Wyden Kennedy, saying, oh, the Beatles are a sellout. John Lennon's a sellout. Why'd you guys sell this song? You're just being exploited, blah, blah, blah. And then Jim read this letter to our group saying, hey, I was watching the tennis match of, you know, I think it was like Yvonne Lendl against somebody. I don't know, this is obviously a long time ago. I was watching the tennis match on Sunday and that song came on, Instant Karma, and it really just like, you know, touched my soul. And I, I am so proud of, to have, you know, known John Lennon and it was such an amazing and beautiful moment. The ad ran at the exact perfect time. I just want to thank you for creating that moment, you know, sincerely, Yoko Ono, yeah. you know. And when you hear stories like that, and you work in you work in advertising, you know, like you're making ads. At the end of the day, you're making ads. It's communication. It resonates with a certain amount of people, but you're at the end of the day, you're making ads. And sometimes you have to really reconcile that with like, you know, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, what are we even doing on this planet? Just making ads? Like, is that all I'm doing with my life? And at Nike, it never felt that way. Right. You know? It always felt like you're actually doing God's work. You know. Well, I you know. I think, you know, we're of a generation where ads were culture, right? And we think of these mega brands, we think of these ad campaigns that, you know, that endure, you know, for generations or that really shaped, you know, whatever. Like, uh, you know, I, like the one that always comes to mind is like, don't squeeze the Charmin, right? Which is, <laughs> uh, you know. Wow, you're really dated. Certainly dated. But... Um, but for, for, you know, most of America at a given time, like, they knew what that was about. 
you know, they could, they had the visual memory and it, it, it was, you know, it was a, it was a short bit of entertainment in between your shows, right? Yeah. Um, it feels to me like that's over. Uh, and that, and so, I don't know, am I, am I wrong about that? I, I don't, um, no, uh, well, yeah, you're wrong. Okay. You're wrong. Uh, Good. And I'll tell you why. Um, I feel like now, you know, I keep thinking of that, you know, that, that expression, the media is a message, you know. Um, you drive around L.A. and you see, first of all, like Apple's the most digital company on the planet. You see their billboards everywhere. So they still advertise in analog sure. media, which I find that, con that contrast really interesting. But I'll think of my favorite, um, one of my favorite brands. Well, I have two favorite brands. Um, everyone loves Apple as a brand, so I'm going to ignore that. Um, but I look at it, and, and we're talking about advertising now. So my one of my favorite brands is Trader Joe's. Mm. You know, they don't really do any ads, right. um, but it's a very like sort of three dimensional experience going to that store. And you have and, and the thing I really love most about TJ's, and try this out: try and find a person in that store who isn't stoked out of their mind about what right. they're doing. Yeah, you know? totally. I, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Right. So that's not an ad, but to me, like that's like the, I think brands have just reformulated themselves and found different ways to connect with consumers. But that's kind of my point, right? Is that I, I don't. I mean, I think you're making an argument that brands are a culture or a part of culture or can be, and I think we certainly would argue that with Apple and Trader Joe's. Well, I think brands certainly drive culture, you know. Right. Um, and. Uh, but but it, but it feels to me like advertising is not the medium for doing that anymore. No, advertising. And yet it's still commands a huge chunk of the, the, the budgets and the energy and the... But the, the good news now is that you can have relationships with brands and right. yes, Nike will do a 30 second ad, you'll watch the NBA finals, <coughs> be with uh, whatever, I, mean, I didn't watch enough basketball to even, I mean LeBron I guess would be the easiest example and you see an ad with LeBron, it's super cool and that's it. But what you also realize, we all realize is if you go into YouTube, you get the, you know, the 146 second version of that ad mm -hmm. and it goes into some whole story and you know you learn a little bit about LeBron or whatever the story is supposed to be but the but the what I think is really interesting is that it's, it's so much easier now to break the rules with the way marketing is designed now and the way it's conceived and my fit one of my favorite brands is Dollar Shave Club okay and I just remember when that one came out I don't know four or five years ago and mm. it's the dude who obviously you're a customer <laughs> like I am <laughs> yeah I don't get around doing too much shaving yeah spare time Same here. um yeah i do use it uh as a matter of fact it's funny and if the dollar shave club people are listening i'm happy to do a sponsorship because i had to put my my membership on hold because i started stockpiling so many razors oh, really? you can see i don't i don't use them very often yeah but that that was like a two minute like little ad they did do you remember this story uh sort of it's the CEO of the company, and he had written comedy in like a previous life, so he just wrote this incredibly funny spot, taking the piss out of like whatever the other razor brands are. Schick, I guess, might be one mm -hmm. of them. He took a swipe at like he basically called it shave technology. And I watched, you know, I watched enough TV to, to when you see like they show the guy rolling the thing on his perfect face, and it shows you all the shave tech that goes into it, and you're like, this is complete fucking horseshit. Like who believes <coughs> in any of this stuff? Right. That was his angle on it. He basically sure. just flipped the middle finger to in a multi-billion dollar category. And by the way, he just sold that to like yeah, yeah. Schick for, I think, two billion with a B, yeah. you know. So he did something, right? Um, and to me, I feel like 
those are the rules of marketing now that the rules are there are no rules like you create the platform you create your own strategy and now that we have this thing called media we get to make our own media and our and our and even what we're sitting here doing right now mm-hmm. you know before if we had to do this you had to be on whatever k-rock and i don't know right. any la radio stations you have to be in like k-rock in new york or la and you'd have to have a pretty fancy studio and have a ta- uh, what do you call it antenna on the ceiling broadcasting and now you and i just sit here and yeah chop it up and you'll edit this hopefully make me sound really intelligent which is going to be a really cha- good challenge for that's you. his job oh that's your job yeah good luck on that um yeah, and we can have this conversation, and and uh, you know, it's yeah, the the model has been totally flipped, and I find mm-hmm. that really fascinating, you know. And brands that do that are the brands that I find resonate the most with me personally, and those sure. are the brands that I really identify with, and the brands I like to work with. You know? Yeah. So I guess what what it feels like to me is that you know it is with with some exceptions, it is the Dollar Shave Clubs. It's these brands coming out of nowhere. It's the entrepreneurs you know, who are making that happen. Whereas Schick and Bake and Gillette with their, you know, endless resources can't come up with anything that anybody wants to watch. Right. And that's the reason why, you know, as a sort of a corporate marketeer of sorts, which is where I've spent most of my career, um, it's fun to like, first of all, it sucks working in companies like that. They can't get out of their, their own way. They can't, there's right. no one's ever going to go into a shick whatever razor <clears throat> meeting and then say to the whatever the uh, client like hey I got an idea for you come here and then give you the soccer ball example you know right. this, that is never going to happen those relationships don't exist you know so what does that what's that mean then when you know uh, a trillion dollars of our gross domestic product is wrapped up in these mega companies that have on on one hand they have you know we would think of like all the power and then on the other hand None of them seem to be able to accomplish anything except for once in a while stepping in a pile of shit to get some, you know, uh, a ton of hate and then they have to let someone go and start over, right? Like, it, it feels like they're, you got the Keystone cops controlling most of the money and then we have, you know, these entrepreneurial brands, whether it's Dollar Shave Club or Rihanna mm-hmm. coming out of nowhere mm-hmm. and just wiping everybody up. Right. And, and again, I know I'm, I'm overstating that, but that's what it feels like, right? Is and and uh, it's hard for me to give music examples because I'm, I'm so old school. I mean, I'll be like, well, the Rolling Stones had a really great album. <laughs> but I think of Billie Eilish as, as one example. Okay. Um, like, to me, she seems like... That's and, pretty current. Yeah, that's about as current as I'm going to get. Yeah. And um, only because she was on Howard Stern recently, so I Got consume it. a lot of my media through that guy. Okay. Um, uh, and it's funny, I, I was listening to him as we were, as we were driving over here, and um, he just interviewed Hillary Clinton, apparently. Uh-huh. I missed that. But on the way over here, he had Will the Farter on. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, what a... That's range. What, amazing, yeah. right? Like, to me, that, that type of contrast, to me, and let's talk about him as a brand. You we know, put like, them on together. But that is not amazing. Yes. Here's a guy who is like, he moves culture, that guy. Yeah, yeah for sure. Will the Farter and Hillary Clinton in like the same week, you know? Like that, I, I don't know any other media personality or brand who can create that type of, right. of reaction in people, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I was, I was a, to give you, just to brag for a second, this is as close as I got to the music industry. I was in, when I was in college a thousand years ago when they had this stuff called vinyl, and I think you remember that? Of course. I was a disc jockey on our college you radio were. station, yeah. And so- um, what'd, you, what'd you play? Um, 
Well, I'm, I was and am and probably always will be. Uh, there's two artists who have completely defined, I think, who I am and, and, and listened to to this day, despite the fact that, that I'm sort of aging myself. There's Billy Bragg being one of them who's okay. just an angry white guy with a guitar trying to, like, you know, s spread his socialist message. And then the artist that, like, just blew me into pieces as a teenager, uh, Prince. You know, mm -hmm. huge Prince fan. Me too. Um, you are too, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember, I mean, the, I remember buying my first album that wasn't Prince, but I remember going, I remember seeing the Prince album in the store when I bought it. it was, I bought Eagles Hotel California. Okay. And then I remember seeing the Prince album and wondering about who that was. And I had an older brother who was seven years older and he kind of knew something about him. Yeah. Um, and I also remember, remember the Dirty Mind album, mm -hmm. which is the, the album cover was Prince in like a G-string underwear standing yep. in front of a mattress, like a sort of stripped down mattress. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the liner notes of that album uh, was Prince uh, in a shower. He was taking a shower wearing mm -hmm. the same underwear. And um, so I took the liner notes out and I taped it into my closet in my room. So I'm about, this is in the early, I'm like 14 years old or so yeah. at the time. My parents never said one word to me about, hey, uh, my mom would, you know, she'd call me Johnny. Johnny, like, why is there a man in his underwear? And she never asked the question, never brought it up. And I almost sort of like tribute, um, uh, I can attribute my sort of, I like to think my sort of open-mindedness to the fact that he was the first person to show me, like you can be a certain way in, in this world and right. actually be accepted, you know? Yeah. Um, but his music, like that. I gave that poster to a girl that I liked. Did you really? Yeah. You know, you remember that poster? Yeah, yeah I bought that album. It was, it was my introduction to prince uh -huh. and i've told the story on the show before but um that it, it blew you know blew my mind that record and uh and i went on a so i you know i bought the record played it to death gave the poster to a girl um and then that christmas my grandparents took me on a cruise down to ensenada and um there was a disco in the bottom of the ship yeah. and i was Somehow I was 10, but I had befriended this 16-year-old girl <laughs> and got her, nice to, work. got her to go to this disco with me. And they're playing um, physical, Living It and John. Sure. On the, uh, you know, and so I walk up to the DJ, 10-year-old kid, not knowing any better. I'm like, hey, um, could you play Head by Prince? And the guy looks at me and he goes, who's Prince? Because it was 1980 and Prince hadn't, broken yet and like you're the, the you know the dj that would be playing a cruise ship right in mexico hadn't heard of prince yet right. and uh, i'm sure he was also just trying to get rid of me that's a but, great song i didn't thought about that song oh uh, it's so good <laughs> i just i just read the morris day uh, autobiography uh -huh. which if you could carve out some time to, it's a that's a good one huh? i didn't so even, good i know that his, it's new oh it is new because obviously it's time as the same i just was in an airport and saw that prince's book finally came out yeah um that's crazy. And I read that. I read in the New Yorker. I, I didn't realize like he'd started writing the autobiography with the guy who ended up, and then he died mm -hmm. like a month into it. So he actually wrote part of it. Yeah. But his handwriting's in there. I kind of flipped through. I mean, I'll read that book for sure. I didn't know Morris Day. Um, it's a cool book. They have this fictional conversation throughout the entire book. He's talking to, he's talking to Prince, but obviously putting words in Prince's mouth. Right. Um, kind of working out some of their issues, which was was cool. When I first saw Bruno Mars, I, I don't know where he came from, but to me, he just sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah. To me, it was 
well, Uptown Funk, that's mm -hmm. like his big hit, right? That was Morris Day, man. Yes. That was straight he up. He got sued like, over that. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. did? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, it was a big lawsuit. Not uh, just that, but uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right, we, can, we can't spin out on Morris Day, but I, I will read that book, though. Let me tell you about our sponsor, HoneyBook. I know a lot of you started your own businesses or you're thinking about it, you got your side hustle, you, you're an entrepreneur, you're the CEO, but uh, if, it's your, if it's your company and you're, you're just starting out, you're, you're also gonna be the accountant, the marketing manager, the assistant, uh, you gotta do it all. And if you don't, it doesn't get done. And I know that's not why you started your business. I can say that for myself. I started to bring ideas into the world and yet we get stuck with all this minutia. So uh, to help you, you need HoneyBook. It's an online business management tool that organizes all your client communications, bookings, contracts, invoices, all in one place. You can sync it up with your Google Suite, your MailChimp, your QuickBooks, or whatever other tools you use. And, uh, and it helps you automate all, all that busy work. There's templates, there's, um, uh, it's just a great system for, for getting more done with less time, lets you focus on the stuff that you really wanna be doing uh, and control your business. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash rebel. Payment's flexible and the promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to honeybook.com slash rebel for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash rebel. So how do you go from that to being a DJ in college? Oh, yeah. Well, so what was I doing being a DJ in college? So, um, oh, I made that connection as we were talking because in... Um, when I was a senior in college, I went to New York City for the, for the first time, sort of on my own, uh, and lived on the Upper East Side for, with, with a kid who had graduated a year prior and did an internship at Madison Square Garden. Oh, cool. So in that, in the morning, I'd listen to Howard and uh, never heard, I, you know, come on, I'm from upstate New York. I went to yeah. college in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. You don't get exposed to really any new right. or interesting ideas. So when I first heard Howard for the first time, I was absolutely like it was kind of like prince right mm -hmm. um i'm now kind of like stringing it together like these people who have made an impact on my life are people who are just out there doing their absolutely doing their own thing and not giving a rip about what people think about them you know yeah. so um without going through my entire career i this internship it's funny i um i think my second week into this internship i was working for the virginia slims tennis championship oh, okay at madison square garden which yeah. is actually a big tennis yeah, yeah. Pro, uh, property back in the day, which is funny to think that cigarette companies. That's was, a women's tournament. It's a women's tournament. Yeah, right? yeah. I have good memory. Yeah. And on the second week, I was working for this really funny guy. He, they all got fired. <laughs> so that was my first, my first introduction into corporate America. Mm -hmm. um, everyone got shit canned, and this guy on his way out the door, uh, basically said to me, "Hey, man, as a favor, can you photocopy this entire book for me?" This is back when we actually had to like you know mm -hmm. use Xerox machines. And so I, I did, and gave, I'm still friends with him to this day. As a matter of fact, I, we were friends on LinkedIn. I spoke to him on email the other day. So it's funny, you never have any idea who are these relationships you make right. in your life and how long you, you, know, you, you, you carry them with you. But what that did for me was, um, I was just like a punk kid from upstate New York. So being in New York, I think it took me like a week or two to sort of get my shit together and navigate the New York subway system. And I'll never forget the moment when I was walking to the subway one day and a woman asked me for directions and I was able to, Oh, wow. Give her direct. And you know, like, cool. when you're whatever, like, I think I was 20 years old, that's a big moment in your life. Like, I still remember what she was wearing, what she looked like, you know. 
And it's funny that stuff that stays with you for this amount of time. Yeah. Um, but all it did was plant the seed that I needed to be in New York City. So I graduated college and moved to New York. And I would say that was probably like the greatest, whatever, seven, eight years of my entire life. You know, living in New York City, again, dating myself. This is back when like Dinkins was mayor and Giuliani and, yeah. you know, um, uh, you you could get arrested like when Giuliani came on. You could get arrested for like urinating in the streets because you know New York was just mayhem back then. It felt right. that way at least. Sure. They actually packed meat in the meatpacking district. You know there wasn't wait it wasn't what I was just there last week. Oh, it's all. Oh man, it's, all it's totally different. I had kind of a weird experience there, and at the end of it, I was just like, you know, um, I don't want to sit here and slam LA and say how great New York is. They both have their own thing going on. Um, but even like a shitty day in New York is still like one of the, can be a, like a good day in your life. And a shitty day in LA always just feels like this is too much. I can't deal with it. I'm not a huge fan of LA, generally speaking, mm. even though I live here. Yeah. Um, what makes it tolerable, tolerable for me, what makes it all work is, um, and you know, New York, you don't really need a vehicle here. You're basically defined by what you drive, you know? So what makes it tolerable for me here is, is motorcycles. And motorcycles has ended up playing like a huge role in my life, particularly living here. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to go five miles. You look at your ways on your phone. It's, you know, an hour and a half. Right. right. Uh, on a motorcycle, uh, you know, it, it, the world is your oyster. Like you, you're, you're able to sort of dissect the city in ways that you can't otherwise. So let's talk about that a little bit. I, you know, I know you're a motorcycle guy. James is as well. Uh, we ride, James. Monster. I almost could have guessed that. I should have asked, I should have guessed. Is that right? I shouldn't even have Can asked. you look at somebody and, and know Sometimes. I'm not that yeah. good at it. But yeah. with him, I would have said, my first guess would have been Triumph. I don't know why. But then I would have gone into the Ducati Monster or the or the uh, the Hyper Motar, which is my, per, my one of my favorite bikes right now. But huh. I could have probably guessed. I, I would have gotten there eventually. You know? That's cool. Um, um, yeah. What was your first bike? My first bike was a 1972 Kawasaki KZ750 that I bought in New York, fifth, New York City. Took the license plate off and parked on the sidewalk thinking I was one step ahead of Johnny Law. But what I didn't realize is that they found the VIN on it yeah. and then wrote me about 400 tickets. <laughs> so that was a problem. Um, I guess. So I just unloaded it yeah. uh, one day. But I've owned, I mean, bikes are, they, they definitely come and go, but I yeah. wish I would... My goal in life is just to have a home, and anyone who knows me knows this story, but my goal in life is to have a home where there's a glass wall between the garage and the house so I can mm -hmm. just sit in my house and just look at them. Like, I get so much pleasure from just looking at those things. There's something cool. about a motorcycle. I don't know what it is, man. You know? Well, so I want to talk about that because, you know, you started off talking about the, the value of a bike in terms of transportation, yeah. right, which is not... Uh, that's not like typically how bikes are sold, right? And and I'm not an expert in it. I've done a little bit of work. Uh, we did some work years ago with Yamaha mm -hmm. um, and Star, mm -hmm. and kind of you know got to learn just the the bare minimum. And about were you the in the music business. business doing that? No, uh, uh, marketing. Oh, okay, that's right. Um, yeah, I know you have a marketing background. Yeah, and so um, right, but you know, there's all of this folklore attached to motorcycles and this, <laughs> um, you know, this. You know the easy rider, the the open road, the kind of freedom. Um, you know, there's this very masculine Americana um, attachment that we have to motorcycles, and it feels like all that is changing. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I mean, that feels like a very dated concept, even as we say it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I know you write about this, and and um, 
so where are we now? What's what is America's relationship to the motorcycle? Yeah, what the fuck's up with bikes, right? And it's funny you're asking this because we just came off of uh, the International Motorcycle Show, or IMS uh -huh. as we call it. Yeah. Um, and ICMA, those are the two big shows. ICMA's in Milan, IMS is here. And we just did ICMA, or sorry, uh, IMS in Long Beach. And so you could argue that Long Beach, SoCal is the epicenter of motorcycle culture, and I would sure. argue that it might be. Yeah. I just came back from New York, and I got to tell you, man, and if the IMS people listen to this podcast, the energy. They definitely do. They do? Yeah. All of them? Yeah, all, all six of them. Of them. Uh -huh. <laughs> we, we, we pipe it into their office. <laughs> the, uh, the energy in Long Beach was somewhere here, and in New York City, man, like, New Yorkers just sort of bring it, you know? Really? Um, I don't know what it was. I was really surprised by that, and I had some great conversations with people there. But here's what's up <coughs> with motorcycle space and, and, and motorcycles as a business. And I have to be careful how I talk about it too because i have to take a few swipes at harley i'm a huge fan of harley i don't ride them um, as you know if you know who harley guys are and harley is an island in the in the sea of the sure. motorcycle industry they operate yeah. sort of independently but here's what's up the if you look at the sales trajectory of bikes it's gone up and down but now it's just flatlined so i think it grew one percent last year so mm -hmm. if you're investing if you're an investor or you want to invest in a growth category i would advise you to stay away from motorsports generally speaking um, but what's really interesting about it, in my opinion, is that two things are happening right now from a business point of view. One is that Harley, who sells, if you can believe this statistic, and you can fact check me on this, but I think this is pretty accurate, one out of every two motorcycles in the United States of America that is sold has a Harley-Davidson logo on it. Wow. One out of two. That's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. So I don't know what their exact revenue is, but it's in the billions. And so their business is kind of slowly contracting for a couple of reasons. One is that um, their consumer's gotten really old. If I say to either one of you guys, what does a Harley guy look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, do you, want to, do you want to take that one or you want me to do it? Range. <laughs> well, there's range, yeah. But generally, I'll put you this way. One day I was at a, I live in Ojai, California, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of motorcyclists come through there and I saw sure. Ducati uh, Diaval, I'm sure I'm saying it the wrong way, but I don't, is that right? Close yeah. enough? And it's like a luxury cruiser kind of bike, huge displacement, I don't know, it's 1100 cc's or something. And I'm looking at the bike, and it's pretty. I would never buy one, but it's a pretty bike. And I'm admiring it, and the guy who owns it came out of like a coffee joint. And if I'd seen him inside holding his helmet and his jacket, I'm like, Harley, dude. Huge gut, 50-something years old, mm -hmm. gray hair, gray beard, tats, anything you can think of that you would attach right. to Harley. This yeah. guy was checked all the boxes and he's riding a Ducati. And I'm like, this is your bike? You know, like I was, he's like, why? I'm like, how many, how many bikes do you own? He's like, oh, I own, and all of them are Harleys. Right. This is the first not a Harley bike. Wow. That's what's going on in the motorcycle industry. Yeah. No one's been known. People who used to buy Harleys are now interested in other bikes. That's a big problem if you're Harley Davidson. Sure. And the other problem, uh, or rather I should say the other opportunity is Larger displacement bikes, this gets a little boring or a little granular, but large displacement bikes, um, first of all, they're really heavy. They're hard to ride. I've ridden Harleys. They're not my favorite bikes to ride. If I'm doing long distance, I'll definitely get on one and I enjoy riding them. I also should say, I used to make fun of those guys riding through LA around the open road with like the radio on 10 and mm -hmm. they got like those, you can literally hear those bikes coming from a mile away and it's sure. usually half radio, half bike. Yeah. So I went to Sturgis this past year and got to ride an Electroglide with a radio. It was one of the most fun experiences of my whole life. So here I am hammering Harley, but I actually think they're a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, it's a ton of fun to ride. And um, 
But my point being is that larger displacement bikes aren't selling as they used to. And so in the used bike market, smaller displacement motorcycles are taking over. And so the question is, why is that happening? Well, one, I would say SoCal kind of drives the scene a bit. And the custom scene here has just gone loco in the sure. past, I don't know, five or 10 years. Um, there's a show in Portland called The One Show. There's a show in Austin, Texas called uh, Handbuilt. There's a show now in L.A. At, there's, I think it's called Dia. I can't remember the name, but this guy Jay is running it now. It's Dia de la Moto. It's like okay. a, it's a new custom bike show here in L.A. Mm -hmm. So all these different cities. In New York, it's the Brooklyn Invitational. <clears throat> they all have different culture to them, they, but they're all kind of like reinforcing this culture around. And I mean... Uh, the culture around custom-built motorcycles is amazing. The culture around motorcycles to me is so fascinating because the guy who rides a Ducati Monster wears a certain helmet, certain jacket, certain kind of jeans, certain shoes. Right. The guy who rides Harley, same thing. It's all very different. Um, and so what also is now happening is that these larger bikes aren't selling. And in the used market, women, and I would say younger people, are buying smaller displacement bikes, of which Harley does not sell many of them. There's the Sportster, right. but not everybody wants to ride that bike. So what's going on now is Ducati has come into the market with great bikes. Mm -hmm. Their sales are up. I don't know. I'm not going to say double digits, but they're up. The Hypermotard does well. The Monster is like a great bike. I mean, it retails for eight grand, eight, nine grand, so anyone can afford one. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's bikes like, and I won't get too into the motorcycle culture, but Husqvarna and KTM, which are kind of, co yeah, see, he knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a bike called... Um, KTM 1090, like super adventure, totally just tricked out, cool looking bike, hard bags on it. looks so, and you can take the bags off, rip through LA, put the bags on, and then take it up to Alaska. That's a pretty utilitarian piece yeah. of machinery, you know? Yeah. Um, and then Husqvarna has these two cool bikes. I can't ever pronounce them, but it's like the Vitpillin and the Svartpillin or something. They're, I don't know who the hell names their bikes. I'm sure they're looking for a job right now. But those bikes sell. Yeah. You know, and I was talking to the KTM guys the other day. I'm like, what's going on with you guys? And they'll brag about it. They're up, if I remember the numbers right, they're up. KTM's up 24%. Their sales are up 24% in a category that has just gone completely dead. So, what so how is that, uh, you know, we talk about um, changing demographics, right? Yeah. We talk about the tanning of America, the feminization of yeah. America. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, again, when we think of Harley and bike culture, yeah. In general, you know, I think we, we think of this very white male dominated. Although, you know, I was like amazed to learn in the 90s about Rough Riders and the fact that there's all this, this black bike culture mm -hmm. that I didn't even know existed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so how, when you talk about these brands that are selling and are gaining market share, whatever, how are they adapting um, to a changing world? And what, and what are they missing? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. I think part of it has to do with the fact that, and I'll pick on a couple brands that have done this well. Um, since customization has, well, you were talking about working with, with you know, with, with Yamaha. Mm -hmm. I don't even associate Yamaha with a brand that I'd want to customize, but there are brands that actually do a right. great job of that. And so BMW came out with a bike called the R9T. Uh, it's pretty fly looking bike. And I actually borrowed one the other day and was zipping around L.A. on. I was at a stoplight, and these two girls were going across this, the crosswalk, and she did a double take. She's like, nice bike. And I'm like, wow, man, this thing really <laughs> does work. <laughs> um, but that bike was designed basically to be customized. You yeah. Know? And so that, that was, um, and, you know, and I'm sure if there's any manufacturer listening to this podcast, they're saying, well, dude, like pretty much every bike on the market's ripe to be customized. And I would agree. 
you know? Harley especially. So that almost begs the question, so what are they doing wrong that everybody else is doing right? Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is just driven by the fact that, um, uh, you know, motorcycle culture is in fact, it's the, it's the sort of the culture within the culture because it's so segmented, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a guy who, who rides a Ducati, he's not inclined to, he probably is going to stay sort of in that ecosystem. Like right. everybody wants to say they have a Ducati. There's something about saying you have that bike. Sure. And, and this gets back again into like the story of the brand and like what yeah. goes on behind the scenes of like that particular brand and how it resonates with different people. Um, sorry, but your question was about like, what are these brands doing to like, yeah, to, to, to be culturally relevant. Well, I think, um, the, 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 the relevance or the like sort of impact, um, that I think is happening in the market now is happening in, again, like in the, what I was talking about earlier with like the, the custom scene, you know? Um, and also there's a sort of like another pocket of it that I find really interesting. Um, it seems to be very personality based. Like I think that's where a lot of the sort of, um, activation happens in the motorcycle space. So there's this dude at a SoCal, um, named Roland Sands. Um, yeah, he knows Roland Sands. He built, he made his name building pretty cool custom bikes. Um, then he kind of made a name for himself. He had like a apparel line that does pretty well. I see it all the time. I don't own any of it, but it, it always looks really nice. Mm -hmm. But the thing I find really interesting about him and his brand is that he sort of has connected himself to this sort of hooligan race series, flat track racing. So flat track racing, it's, it's like a quarter mile track, you go around in a circle, you just basically go to the left for yeah. about 20 minutes just sure. racing around a track. And uh, what's really interesting about it is that you wear a, like a metal boot on your, I think I guess it would be on your, your left foot or your right foot, you gotta <coughs> about this for a second. Probably your left. Uh, yeah. And um, as you're ripping around this, <laughs> it's incredibly dangerous as you might imagine. And they're like, 700 to 750 to like 900 cc bikes they're big bikes when guys wipe out man you're getting hit like yeah. it's no joke i took my 14 year old daughter to a race and she's like that was the most fun that i've ever had and you're, you're getting hit with dirt i mean it's like really like you're really engaged in the yeah. in the event um but the crowd that goes that you know it's definitely kind of like a socal moto crowd a little rough mm -hmm. around the edges you know mm -hmm. um but that hooligan series it's really interesting to me because first of all just the name hooligan is great and it's definitely like the, the kind of guy who races hooligan is like, you have to have absolutely no fear to, to do any type of motorcycle racing, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't, I've been on a track, I've done a track day, but you're out there by yourself and you're racing, like you're not smashing into a guy at 185 miles per hour, you know? Right. Um, but the hooligan series to me is like that, that is like sort of one area of, 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 from like a marketing perspective that like, you know, as a guy, like, you know, obviously I'm over the, I'm, I'm 50 years old and like, how do I connect with like a 20 year old person in, in, in in motorsports and hooligan racing seems to be that one area where everything does seem sort of seem to cross over and you okay. can really connect with sort of like what is happening in the sport women don't race flat track but they probably could I actually yeah. have never women in motorcycling is kind of a phenomenon unto itself because not a ton of women seem to ride when you go to events there are a lot of women there i think it's something like there's 13 million motorcyclists in the u.s and maybe 10 percent are women. Uh -huh. um, when I was talking about earlier about like where the business is heading and smaller displacement bikes, a lot of that's driven by women. <coughs> um, there are bikes that are on the market that, you know, is, I, I, I'm sure I'll get take heat for saying this, but what do I care? 
the Sportster, which is Harley's smallest model, yeah. people have always told me that's a woman's bike, although sure. I don't necessarily believe that, but that's sort of like what people say about them. Um, but uh, I've ridden with women who, uh, you know, anyone can twist a throttle. It's, right. it, it's, it's limiting the fear factor in your head. And I've ridden with women who seem to have tamped that down and can rip on a track. You know? Well, I'm sure that's true. And, and I also think a lot of it is identity, right? That, that uh, do you, you know, do people see themselves? Like, again, if, I, if we have a certain perspective of what a cyclist looks like, uh, you know, what a rider looks like, then um, do I see myself in that role, right? right. Does that suit my identity? Right. And, and I think historically, like, you know, when you ask people about the motorcycle industry, like it's Marlon Brando and the Wild yeah. Ones and all that stuff. There's totally. a lot of baggage with it and Hells Angels and, you know, the mongrels and moto gangs. And, right. You know, at the end of the day, like, I guess there's, I guess that's, you know, there's a rebel quality to it, and I can't say that like, that doesn't appeal to me in some way because it does, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the part that really isn't isn't is interesting, and I should say like engaging or amazing, is at the end of the day, man, you're sitting, you've taken a motor, you've stripped away all the pieces, you're not in a safe box, you don't have the air conditioning on, you're sitting there, you've stripped all the pieces away, you've then taken that motor, shoved it between your legs, and then you're sticking yourself out on the four or five freeway, going, in most cases, faster than you probably should be, um, right. battling the boxes, as I call them, because that's what it is. And someday the boxes are con, and on most day they're not. You know? yeah. And when shit goes wrong out there, it goes wrong fast. And uh, you know, I've seen, and I don't want to get into the gory details, of it, I've, we've all seen stuff that's really sort of disconcerting and upsetting. Yeah. And you know, as the expression goes, there's two kind of motorcyclists in the world, those who have gone down and those who, who you know, have not yet. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I'm both of those at this point. <laughs> like, I've, I've definitely wiped out, but not on the street. Mm -hmm. um, so you're riding an incredibly, you're riding an <coughs> explosive device between your legs. So that's definitely part of the sort of interest of, of, of riding a bike. Sure. But I've written about it, and I think I sent you that, that article, sort of the, the when we were trying to figure out how to conduct this, this discussion. Um, it hasn't gone at all according to plan. Right? <laughs> I know. I'm realizing that's okay. I'm no, no, I'm just kidding. This is great. <laughs> um, but the part about I have all these life lessons that I've taken away. I actually wrote them down today because, as we were talking about, I'm like I'm not even sure I remember like even nice even what I wrote. You know, so I had to, what, what, what you got over there? Well, I, w I literally went back and looked at them because I had to like think about like. You know, I know because I know the listeners who listen to this podcast they want knowledge, like they want to be able to take stuff away from these interviews. You know. Yeah. So I went back and looked at it, and it was basically, here are the seven things, it was actually six things, right, that you need, um, or si the six things I've learned from riding motorcycles. Right? Oh, cool. And this was in the article, and I'll rattle through them, and then you can ask me any questions about them if it's even interesting. Um, but the one thing, I'm actually going to start at the bottom, because I learned this from Richard Branson, right? So I'm a big, I, like you, I probably can, you consume a lot of podcasts, you yeah. consume a lot of media. Um, but I listened to uh, a podcast with Richard Branson, and he talked about when he was working on Virgin Records, they got into like all kinds of financial distress. And it's just amazing that guy flipped a record company, parlayed it into an airline when the record industry was booming when he sold that thing. Yeah. And everyone thought he was an idiot. And look, yeah. I mean, just brilliant the move that guy made. I think about that all the time. I'm sure every single person told him, do not do this, and he did it and went into the airline business. But he talked about when he got in financial distress that he had to spend his way out. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought was, that was really interesting because when companies get in, 
even when I was at Nike, like when there was some, I was there during the child labor era when, you know, kids in factories and that was like obviously a very touchy subject. Um, and sales definitely took a dip. And one of the first things we did was spend our way out of it. Mm. And so that was one of the things I wrote down was more throttle, less break. You know, mm. like when shit goes south sometimes, like if you've ever ridden dirt, <clears> when the bike <throat> is unstable and the back wheels kind of going all over the place, if you give it more gas, it straightens everything out. And so I think about that. It works in business sometimes, you know, when something isn't feeling right, when shit's going off the rails, sometimes just by applying more pressure or by applying more acceleration, by applying more spending or by applying more pressure to your sales force, you can sometimes get a desired result, you know. So how do you learn to do that, right? You're, you're, you know, I'm not a motorcyclist. I've ridden a few times, but, uh, but you know, I ride, I ride mountain bike, road bike, right? And when you're potentially going down, like when, when the bike gets unstable, yeah. the last thing on anyone's mind is to, is to hit the throttle, right? Is to go forward. Right. You think you should go slower so you can stick your feet out or Absolutely. That, that's the death wish, man. For sure. And so um, and I get that, that I get that as an analogy for business and life. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you train yourself to do that? Yeah, and the answer to that is I don't know, but I can tell you this. Like cool. um, when when it's like fight or flight. Uh, I was riding with a guy one time in Vermont. I lived in, in Vermont for a year or two. And we'd out riding one day and we kind of got split up and we met at a, anytime you split up, you always sort of pick a spot where you can reunite. And I was riding with this dude from work who had a Ducati monster. And we came around this corner and I lost him and I caught up to him later, covered in blood, not his. I'm like, dude, <laughs> what happened? And he was, we were riding on this country road, some dog came out of nowhere. Oh. And he's like, I had absolutely no time to think. But he said, my first reaction was just to gun it because if I slow the bike down, I'm gonna crash. The dog's gonna get hit either way. Right. So I accelerated through the dog and he said he split it in half. Oh and, my God. And it was just like, there were literally chunks of dog on his, yeah, sorry, I'm just a, dog, a couple dog a lovers story. in here probably. So we kind of picked the dog pieces off his bike and it's a great story, but um, I can tell you the one or two times in my life where an animal has come in front of me, once I hit the brake and once I hit the gas and nothing serious happened either way. But I think about the dog story a lot when I'm out there. So a lot of times, um, you know, and this gets into, it gets into my other one, so that's a good segue, which is the number one thing that I wrote was, what is behind you is just as important as what's in front of you. So when you're out riding a bike, I'm checking my side, what's behind me, as much mm -hmm. as I'm checking what's in front of me. Because, um, and if there are any teenage girls listening, I don't apologize for this. Teen if I see a teenage girl or a young woman, and I don't care if any woman takes me for task on this, I don't care, I really don't. If I see a young woman on the freeway and she has a phone in her hand, I tend to accelerate away from her or drop back and because they're always a little bit all over the place. They're a little sure. bit skittish. And so metaphorically, in your life, you make these decisions. We sort of start, start talking at the very beginning about these micro decisions you make in your life that affect you. You have to remember those decisions because just because it's behind you, it still affects what's going on in your life. And like what's, what is going to happen ahead of you in your life is, is still connected to the decisions you've made behind you. You know, um, and uh, the the dog story doesn't really play into that, um, but I can tell you that when I ride on freeways in LA, and I do it way too often than I probably should, um, I'm hyper. It's 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 not even like you know, and you know this. It's not even like you're really enjoying yourself out there right. half the time. Half the time you're doing the calculus in your head. 
fuck, fuck, what's that guy? You know, yeah. I got pulled over by the police one day for going 85, and I couldn't believe the guy wrote me a ticket. He's like, why were you going so fast? I'm like, I wasn't going fast. I said, I was searching for my little safe pocket on the freeway, and you just happened to catch me as I pulled into right. my space. You should be thanking me for being a safe guy. So you don't have to scrape me off the freeway. He didn't think that was funny, and I went to traffic school, and it's all, <laughs> it's all fixed. But um, I think I do think about, like, that was my number one when I wrote that article. That was the first thing I was thinking about is um, is what is behind you. You know, you always have to look at what's behind you all the time. Hey, if you're enjoying this one, and I hope you are, uh, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out one of my earlier episodes. I had a guy on called Brandon Wardell. I don't know why I'm telling you about it now, but I just like that episode. He's a funny guy. I saw him on stage at the Improv and just hit him up. I wanted to have him on the show. We had a lot of fun in the studio, you know, talking about his crazy journey as a, as a comedian. I think you'll like it. Maybe you won't. That's your problem. So to go back to what we talked about at the beginning of this with uh, entrepreneurship and failure. Yeah. And so how does this rule kind of play into that? Well, because... Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, do you ever notice people say that's a good question? They're usually trying to think of like... Yeah, you're buying yourself you're time. You're buying yourself great. time. So you know that trick? No, it's smart because you pay the person a compliment. <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking about how smart I am for that great question I asked, and that wow. gives you time to think of the answer. John said 10 times today, good question. He clearly was ill-prepared for this discussion. Um, all right, what was the question again? It was what, how, does that, how does that number one fit into Yeah, this idea of what's behind us, right? right. You know, how, how does that... Um, how does that impact this idea of what's, you know, of, of how we think about failure and how we think about entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, I w there's, well, you can look at the Phil Knight version, right? Which is <coughs> these unbelievably tricky decisions that he had to navigate. You know, again, like, do I sign Jordan? Do I sign Ewing? Like, y you always reflect back on those decisions. And so, great, you signed Jordan. You built a kajillion dollar company. Great decision. If he'd signed Ewing, would, would you and I be sitting here talking about Phil Knight? Maybe not, you know? So you have to con consider that stuff. Um, or another entrepreneurial icon of mine, um, uh, Jake Burton, you know, rest in peace. He mm -hmm. just died at 65 and um, really good boss. And, um, you know, he, uh, I, I mean, I don't really know his entrepreneurial path. I know that he taught, well, he, this actually does kind of answer the question. He taught tennis uh, in Manhattan to sort of fund the company in the early days. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he you know, I, I knew him, but I, I, you know, I was definitely not in his inner circle, but I, you know, knew him. He was mm -hmm. my boss for, for a while. Um, he, uh, he was definitely by, by any means necessary kind of guy. Like, anyone who's willing to, like, he didn't just start a business. He invented a category. He invented a sport, yeah. you know, as an adult, yeah. you know. I mean, I doubt any of us have the ability to, 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 to have that kind of, like, foresight and to build a, you know, I don't know what the revenue of Burton is. It's about... 350 million bucks when I was there. I'm sure it's, it's twice the size of that now. Yeah. You know? Um, but, I'm, but, you know, he had went through his ups and downs for sure. But, um, yeah, I think the... And then I'll even, I'll even throw, you know, my father into it. He, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was a sort of small-town businessman, owned a chain of, of retail stores. Um, he made some really good decisions in his life and made some horrible ones at the same time. And, you know, sitting around the dinner table with him at night, like, he, I, I wouldn't say it was like a... Uh, you know, he didn't. He, 
he wasn't distilling the secrets of the universe through the eyes of a retail entrepreneur. Um, but I remember we sat around the table one night. It was kind of funny. And his business did okay throughout the years, but there's this thing that came out and I don't know, the eighties we'll call it what it was, like the catalog, the catalog started. You guys remember mm -hmm. the J crew catalog yeah, and, yeah. you know, and it really affected my dad's business. You know, he was in the, in the soft goods business. Oh, yeah. And I remember when it was, for, it was time for him to sell the business, he came to me, he was like, what do you want to do? You want to buy into this business or not? And I didn't really want to live in a small town. I wasn't really interested in being in that line of business. And I said, dad, the catalog business is eventually going to eat, eat up retail as we know it. <laughs> this goes to show you like the internet had yet to even sure. be invented. So could you imagine like, I don't know what year, this is probably in the nineties, having that conversation, not even knowing like what was, what was ahead of us. So yeah. Looking back on it, I mean, now I feel like um, anyone who's in the retail business, I was just in Manhattan, as I was telling you, and uh, a lot of storefronts are empty. I was mm -hmm. walking, I walked up to visit a buddy in the Upper East Side. I was walking up Madison Avenue. There are empty storefronts two blocks from the mansion where Ralph Lauren's famous store is. You know, that was never even possible yeah. a few years ago. So retail business is, in my opinion, a disaster. I think if you're in like the restaurant business, like that's a good business now because that's never going to be replaced by the internet. You sitting down and having good food made by human hands and having a conversation with somebody. You know, that we were walking over here in blue bottles around the corner and um, I'm a huge fan of what those guys do. As a matter of fact, uh, I was just talking about, I use blue bottle as a business model to raise a million dollars to start a coffee business. Nice. Um, that, I think that was part of the part of my story as well. Yeah. And I, I, technology as amazing as it is and as much as it's, it's really confronting for me, um, partially because I have teenage daughters and they're constantly looking at their phones and I find that to be like, it's such a hard part of like, sure. cause we never had that stuff growing up, you know, right. but we're on our shit all the time. Um, so I really feel like the technology, as much as it's laying waste to our society, it's also, you know, it, 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 it's still gonna allow business like Blue Bottle being a great example. Like as much as technology continues to proliferate into our lives, sitting across the table from somebody and drinking a really mm -hmm. decent cup of coffee and the story behind that coffee like to me, that's really interesting. You know, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, we're talking about motorcycles. I no, no, no. This is great. I took you off course. No, no, I love it. I love it, and you know, I think, you know, when you talk about technology, um, I think we're confronted more now than ever with this idea of taking the good with the bad, right? That that you know, the the automobile has had catastrophic effects on the environment, on humanity, on, right? There's caused more death and all that. But we don't really think about that. We generally think about cars, having cars in our lives is a great thing or having the option to drive from place to place is a great thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we think about the stories of before cars existed to now, right? Um, but, you know, maybe part of that is because it's ancient history or whatever the reason is. But I think, you know, technology, you know, uh, digital technology is, is uh, corollary to that except we're hyper aware of both the good and the bad on a daily basis right and and you know you can't have a conversation with people who either aren't uh, so excited about their new app or phone or or whatever thing they just discovered yeah. or how fucked up everything is and no one looks each other in the eye and like you know and has and i think on both sides there's like wild exaggeration and also lots of truth and and all of that but it's it's consuming to us as a society just our, our thoughts about our relation to that in ways that uh, we've never had before. And do you, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions here, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because you didn't tell me there are any rules, so I like to just make shit up as I go along. Yeah. So do you feel like um, technology has 
uh, expanded your relationships with people or have detracted from them? Uh, both. I would say in general, it's been more good than bad. Yeah. Um, so it gives me the opportunity to, you know, and I was going to ask you about this, um, although James is telling me we're running out of time. But um, Don't listen to James. I know, he's the worst. Okay. Um, I'd rather do Cotty, what is he now? Shit, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, oh. So, you know, technology gives me the ability to keep in touch with people, keep, you know, keep tabs on people I'm interested in, you know, stay in touch with friends and family and business people that, um, that I would like to, and it just makes it a lot easier, exponentially easier. Um, and so, but I was wondering, you know, you've talked about people that have been important or influential in your life, um, Chuck McBride, you know, other people like that. Um, how do you... How do you either, you know, keep in touch with those people or keep that, um, you know, just keep those relationships alive? Yeah, I don't actually. Um, cool. <laughs> Good story. At all. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible at it. Uh, I find that um, it's funny that you were, I never planned on talking about Chuck McBride today, but it's funny that that's one name that came up and I didn't plan on talking about him. Um, but what I'm finding is the same thing you are, is like, and let's just pick on Instagram, because um, I could get, first of all, I wish I could get, just get rid of all this stuff. Like everyone says, oh, I'm not on Facebook. We're all, we're all on it, of yeah. course. Um, we may not post stuff on it. Um, well, but, Facebook's on us. Yeah, yeah, well that's actually a really good way of looking at it. And I'm, uh, I just read today that, you know, Google tracks everywhere that you go, and I just kind of look at it sure. as the double whammy. I mean, I love Waze, and I love the fact that everyone who's opening up Waze is creating this sort of collective intelligence around how to get around LA, which, let's be honest, like we all need help getting around this place. You Absolutely. Know? Without it, we'd all be nothing. On the flip side of it, um, the anxiety that it creates in our culture, and I'm dealing with that right now in my own life with you know, someone in my family who I think spends too much time on the phone, and you, know, you have kids, I'm assuming. Yeah. 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 And you know, I think with teenage girls, it's particularly mm -hmm. divisive. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, we're not going to solve that problem today, uh, unfortunately. Um, but what I really find <laughs> in the stuff that I get excited about, which essentially is, you know, motorcycles and, and um, snowboarding, which are two activities that really resonate with me, is that I can kind of learn about like, oh, this guy just built this cool custom bike, you know, and and there's this design idea behind it. And you can kind of like go down the rabbit, like that's just, there's nothing better than that, man. Like I can basically... Yeah study an entire culture of the of the business culture that I'm in sure. through an app. I met a guy in Absolutely. the art business who said, I have the art world dialed through Instagram. Yeah. Because you can just curate this whole thing. Absolutely. There's nothing getting away from that, man. Like I really I think that's really an, an important thing. But I think we're just fucked as a culture, generally speaking, at like how much importance we, we place behind it. And then like getting back to the the relationships part of it, um, you know, I you know, we all say that that you know, we have these, you know, these, these good friends. I've been living in LA now for, I think it's like coming up on 18 years. A lot of my friends are still back on the East Coast. I have mm -hmm. some friends here in LA. I don't spend enough time hanging out with those guys. It's hard to make, especially I think when so, you're a dude and yeah. you guys back me up on this, I think it's harder to make relationships in your adult years. It's much more difficult to maintain a meaningful relationship with another male adult your age you know, versus when you're like 24, 25, you just go out and grab a beer and just, yeah. it just felt lighter, easier. But when you have like job and kids. Yeah, and everyone's too busy. But like myself I, included. Like we're all, we, there's just too much shit that, you know, yeah. needs to be done. And there's too much choice, you know. Yeah. 
Um, and then we shouldn't spin out on, on, on that, but like even like, you know, the, the media landscape, there's, there's too much choice. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, it's the reason why I like In-N-Out Burger so much. I don't really eat that that much. When you go in, it's like you get three things, dude. Uh -huh. And without and back to Trader Joe's, it's the reason why I like Trader Joe's. You go in there, man, you want to buy toilet paper. There's two kinds. Yeah, yeah. You know, like th yeah. there's something about that that is just really appealing. And I think, totally. um, you know, I'm working on this project right now. We're trying to get people to opt into like this idea of a motorcycle subscription. And I think one of the hard parts about that is, you know, you pay a flat fee and you get to ride whatever bike, but then there's 400 bikes. Okay, so now right. what bike do you pick, you know? Yeah. So I, I feel like that's part of what sucks about technology is that there's just- Yeah, too much choice. There's an incredible amount of it. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, um, all right, so I gotta, I'm gonna bring it back to- Yeah, give, my, it, give us one more rule and last, then I gotta get to lightning round. My last one. Um, all right, I'm gonna go with, or I'll go with this one, and I, well, no, I'm gonna skip that one. I think my second one was, was and this is kind of what we talked about too, is, um, and how you're, you know, it's not so much around relationships, but target fixation, right? Mm. So that's a big problem when you're riding a motorcycle, right? If you just focus on one thing, you tend to crash into it. So I think it's good to have like, almost like having your, your head on a swivel, like, you know, I talked about what's in front of you is just as important as what's behind you. It's also important, even in your own personal life and in your own personal relationships, not to target fixate on one thing or that thing just expands, you know? So, um, you know, if you're in a tough spot with your lady, it's probably good to like sort of talk about what the issue is between you. But if you're constantly, constantly, constantly like going ed edging in on that one thing, nothing good is gonna come out of that, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's exaggerated, getting back to the technology piece. I think, I think that's heavily exaggerated on, on social media, like people, um, sort of like, uh, like picking apart things, you know? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I was just about to make another negative comment about a motorcycle brand and decided I was gonna cut myself. You can edit that part out anyway, man. I know you can do that. So, so bring that back to entrepreneurship, right? Cause there's, you know, again, there's this, this uh, I believe it's a myth in, um, when, in the discussion of entrepreneurship that what a lot of these people are doing is they're packing the work of a 40 year career into a four years. Yeah. Right, build a company, huge, fast, exit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's complete bullshit um, that uh, it actually doesn't work that way, that there are elements of those processes that you can't accelerate. Correct. Um, but the argument, with, like, you know, the, if people buy into that idea, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's tar target fixation, right? It's staying laser focused on a particular goal is, is said to be the answer. Right. Um, right. The big audacious goal, right? Yeah. I want to be a $40 billion company. Anything else short of that. I, somebody once said to me that when you're setting goals for yourself or for a company, <coughs> particularly for a company, you can set a goal so big you can't achieve it in your lifetime. Right. I don't know how I feel about that. You know, um, you know my own personal philosophy is I believe that I, I, I sort of buy into the idea of be the master in the art of living where your work and your life are somewhat indistinguishable. You know, yeah. I've been able to achieve that in some areas of my life. In snowboarding, I worked, you know, I worked for Jake for a while, and motorcycling for the past five or 10 years, I've been sort of dabbling in that. And that feels really important to me, you yeah. know? Um, I feel like, um, I feel like if you're, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to get into the cliche part of it, like if you do, do what you love, you never work a day in your life. I think that's bullshit. That's bullshit too. Yeah. It's total bullshit because it's- Thank it's, you for that. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. And right. you still have to 
go to the grocery store, you still have to drop your kids. There's like stuff you got to do. You don't always want, you know. Well, and also like part of any great job sucks. Yes, it does. And, you know, you still have to fire people. You still have to worry yeah. about payroll. You still have to haggle with insurance or whatever, right? There's no, there's no such thing as uh, it not being worked just because you are sold on the outcome. Yeah. Or, or you enjoy parts of it or whatever. Or you have to edit an interview to make a guy sound really interesting. That's hard work, man. You know? Not for me. <laughs> it's easy for me because James does it. Thanks, James. Um, Be kind over there, man. <laughs> uh, okay, lightning round. Uh, so lightning round, you ask questions, and I have to sound like I, I've thought, I, I just let it No, because he'll edit out the long pauses. Oh, he you, will. Okay. While you stumble. Oh, we might so even I can know. say, that's a really good question. <laughs> James is like, mm-hmm. James, what was that bike you had before you, Ducati? What was it? That was my first bike. Your first bike? Wow, you jumped right in. I mean, I was riding other people's bikes. Ah, okay. Yeah. And it's not the new one. I got an old one. Yeah, never buy a new bike. No reason. We should it. never buy a new car either. Yeah. yeah. It makes even less sense to buy a new bike. You, yeah. Yeah. It's the one with the drag clutch. I like, you know, I don't like it reliable. I just love that sound. Broad knock? Yeah, just the... You know, if you're out drinking coffee and a guy pulls up on a dry clutch Ducati, you can just, you can see it, you can hear it, you can smell it. There's something just nice about it. You know? Loose change. Yeah, loose change. <laughs> so, okay, real quick on that before Go. we get to the lightning round. Yes. Because um, I know you're an advocate for electric motorcycles. My goal, in, my goal in this project I'm working on now is to make Los Angeles an electric two-wheel community. Like, that is a big audacious goal that I yeah. will not achieve in my lifetime. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, you can make strides towards it. But I will make strides towards it. I think so it's just on that, idea. though, you, you know, um, there's, I know there's debate about this. I know it's in the car business yeah. and yeah. motorcycles. But, um, and you just mentioned the sound of the Ducati. So yeah. electric bikes yeah. don't have the sound. Nope. Um, how, how, what is that? How do we get over that? Yeah, so I have a couple thoughts on that. <laughs> One is that... Um, uh, it's funny, I, was, I have an electric car and I was driving it through a parking lot the other day and this woman was like talking on her phone just was walking in front uh -huh. of me and I'm like, there's no, I don't yeah. wanna, didn't want to horn her. Right. Um, so like, what do you do? So I think car companies, if you're listening, you need to put a feature in the car that's like, or maybe like what cops like have, it's soft like, hey lady, you know, like something to like cue people, like yeah. get your head out of your ass. Um, it would be really great to ha when when electric motorcycles proliferate and they will, there is going to need. There is going to need to be some type of, uh, you know, sound component to those bikes because it is a real problem. Now, when you're yeah. whizzing, when you're lane splitting on the freeway, and you've been on the freeway when some guy comes by and has clipped your mirror or something, um, that's already dangerous to itself. It doesn't really need to apply to that because sure. that whirring sound those bikes make. Right. The, the Harley Livewire just came out this year. Yeah. And you can hear that thing. Like yeah. it has that. Zzz, you know, you can really. It's not a dry clutch Ducati for sure. It's definitely not that potato potato sound that a harley has but it makes a sound you know um so uh i don't i'm not involved <laughs> i don't have any uh product development connections um in the motorcycle industry but i will tell you that with with uh, uh technology and integration into smartphones you should be able maybe this dude this is a business maybe you and i should do we should invent an app that allows you to upload sounds you can yeah. put on your phone and then you buy the hardware and you install it onto your motorcycle. So when you're in LA traffic and you know someone pisses you off, you can give them like the, the, like the blow horn, or the, you, you know, something. Like we need to. So I, I, we can't solve that problem today. But uh, electric bikes um, will they will proliferate. But the sure. sound is definitely something that's going to have to. Someone will add a sound. Yeah. 
to the bike. The Zero guys make great bikes. Um, they're incredibly, incredibly quiet machines. Mm -hmm. We're gonna, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, they have horns on them, but that's not. Which I think there's a safety issue, but there's also like, there's that emotional connection people have to the sound yeah. of a certain engine or, yeah. you know, the, the rumble of it, right, is part of the rider experience. For sure. And um, there's this guy named Carlin Dunn, um, who's a professional motorcycle racer. Rest in peace. He died this past year at Pikes Peak. And um, he was telling me that one of the difficulties of racing electric bikes versus internal combustion is that the engine screams. It tells you when to shift the bike. Yeah. You know? Right. There's no shifting on an electric bike. You're literally just right. twisting yeah. your wrist. Yeah. And so it's a little bit harder to have that relationship with the bike and how fast, how much you've wound it up. And sure. When you move it or shift it or like it, it, it's just a different experience. Mm -hmm. I don't race bikes at 185 miles per hour, so it's difficult for me to talk about that. Yeah. Um, but by the way, there is an electric motorcycle race series now. Um, I'm sure attached to MotoGP, yeah. so um, it's not broadcast on TV, unfortunately. But it's really interesting. And nice. uh, I was talking to the CEO at the motorcycle show, who whose bike was the bike picked to be the. They all race on the same bike. Cool. So it was really interesting. He was telling me all about that. That. Okay, lightning round. Go. What's your it, favorite city to travel to? My favorite city to travel to, there's, can I say two? Uh, Copenhagen, mm. in Denmark. Yeah. Um, you can walk 20 feet in any direction and eat the best smoked fish you'll ever have on the planet. Yeah, it's great. I just love it. And then um, my best friend on the planet, New York City. Uh, I told someone, someone asked me, like, what do you like about New York City? It's the place that pushes you down on the street and punches you in the face and kicks you and then 20 minutes later will lift you up and make you feel like a million bucks and it happens in a span of like 20 minutes. That's funny. Something about New York to be able to do that. All right. Well, I know you said you're not a music guy and I know you were also a DJ. So yeah. um, do you have a favorite DJ? Yes. <laughs> this is a canned answer because you interviewed him. Oh? DJ Vice. Oh, I, I call him that. Eric. Yeah. <laughs> DJ Vice. Love Vice. He, um, uh, he also, it's not because he gave me a really expensive bottle of tequila as a gift, though that might have something to do with it. Uh, I'm not heavy in the, whatever, club scene, or yeah. I, I love going to Vegas, and uh, hopefully Vice will hear this podcast and he'll hook Ooh. me up with some tickets, but yes, next time we're all in Vegas, I'm going to take us to, I want to see him play, yeah. because I'm such a huge fan of his, and he's such a cool guy, yeah, yeah. and we have a really interesting connection, which I'll tell you about on another podcast. He's an amazing DJ, great guy. Good, good combination. He's like, uh, when I met him, I couldn't, like, I said, what do you do, man? He's like, oh, I'm a DJ. And I figured, yeah. like, like, what, on, like, radio station? Like, what do you mean? And then when he told me what he did, and I was looking at his Instagram, like, wow, you really are, man. Sure. You've really accomplished something with your career. That's yeah. great. What's the last great book you read? Uh, I'm reading one now, and I couldn't even tell you the name of it because I listened to it on Audible. Yeah. Um, what was the last book I read? Oh, it was, um, what's, my God, I can't even think of the guy's name. Ryan, it was, a, it was about the ego is your enemy. Oh, Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm um, a big fan of his. I like him. Definitely, yeah. you know, he's a young dude, and so I, I like to hear from the, the young guns, like, what's going on out there. I like his whole series of books, and yeah. his, his philosophy is interesting, and uh, we all struggle with our ego. Uh, I have some ideas on how people can crush their ego, and that's definitely not something I can squeeze into the lightning round. Um, but that book was, it definitely resonated with me, and I, 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 may, I, I annotated in it, I was so interested in it. So that was, nice. that was a great book. Cool, uh, well we're gonna have you back and teach us how to crush the egos. <laughs> what movie have you seen the most in your life? Reservoir Dogs. Oh, 
Yeah. Well, I take that back. There's two answers. Reservoir Dogs, because it was such an intense yeah. script and also felt more like a play than a movie. <clears throat> but I, again, going back to the original genesis of this discussion, I've seen Purple Rain about 300 times. Oh, wow. And finally got to watch it with my teenage daughters who yeah. kind of like cringed. It's hard watching like sex stuff with your kids. And right. there's that scene where Prince gets over on Apollonia and it's yeah. pretty, it's kind of not that terribly graphic. Sure. Great movie, man. That movie yeah. holds up after all these years. I could watch that movie. We should watch it when this is over. We should go and find a place. It's got to yeah. be somewhere in that way. down. Um, what style of yours are you glad is behind you and not on social media? <laughs> That's just a weird question. That's not a good, like, like a, per, like a, like yeah, a fashion like, style yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, like you had. Um, okay. Uh, I j well, first of all, I still wear, um, I don't know what you call it, like the alligator shirts, right? Uh -huh. So I used to always pop my collar up on them back in the day. Nice. And uh, I still wear them because uh -huh. I somehow, I don't know if they're back, but to me they're back because I still wear them. And uh, I had my, every t when I wear them, I always put my collar up and my teenage daughters are just aghast. <laughs> the fact that it pisses them off means that I, I sure. so if I have a polo shirt on, I put my collar's up. But so it kind of, is a, it's, it's not really the answer to your question. No, it's a good I'm, one though. I'm go I like it one. anyway. Um, what's the last thing you stole? <laughs> Seriously, like, like uh, the last you, thing I stole. Can you remember? Um, yeah, it was pro. It was probably a bottle of booze. Oh, nice. From a friend's house. Yeah, that's cool. I that's went worth to a, stealing. Yeah, I went to a party and uh, it, I brought a bottle of wine. Yeah. But there's a really good bottle of tequila there, and I overheard him saying, "He's like, oh, I'm not a huge fan of tequila." And someone had taken like it was like that Casa de Amigos, yeah. which I really love. And so I, yeah, I, I drank it out back and then I put it in my car. Lori, what's the last thing you stole? Sorry, the last thing I didn't steal. Okay. I got a package from, I ordered something from Nordstrom. Yeah. Like this past couple of weeks. And it said it was delivered to my doorstep and it didn't show up at my doorstep. Yeah. And so um, I was charged for it. So I called them and they canceled the order. And then it showed up a week later, <laughs> and I called them, yeah. and I said they had taken it off my account. Right. And I said, you have to charge me again because it showed up. Oh, so wow. I didn't steal it. You are exceedingly honest. That is I the most that ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I karma it was a good thing to do. Oh, my yeah. God. I would have just kept it. I, well, I did keep it. I mean, if I wanted it, like I would have just I kept, kept it, it and not. I wouldn't have called them to. There are times in my life where I wouldn't have, but I felt like it was You're, better for me to. You are the morally superior person in this, this room. At this moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. What was I the like last it. thing you stole? Ah oh, man, I, 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 I thought about when I wrote this question down. I, I need to know the answer for myself. I don't know, but there was a time, you know, around high school, college, when we used to just sort of steal stuff from time to time. Right. Like, you know, I had friends that were like serious, like boosters and they go to Banana Republic and wow. like jack a bunch of clothes and yeah. thing and whatever. And I remember one time I was like, I went somewhere with my mom and I snagged like a t-shirt or whatever. So this is, this is a long time ago, but, uh, and you know, and I, I, I showed it to her after and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, and I expect, I don't know what I expected her to say. That was nuts. But yeah, it wasn't that. Do you also, when you go to Whole Foods, do you eat out of the bin? Oh, I know the last thing I saw. <laughs> when, uh, when I was in college, yeah. I went to UCLA, and, uh, and you'd go in the cafeteria, and right at the front, 
at the checkout, they would have chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. And I would always just walk in there, grab a chocolate chip cookie, and then go get my lunch. And I would pay for the lunch and not the cookie. I did that at Whole Foods oh, yeah. recently with a scone. Yeah. And I just was eating and shopping. And I usually pay for it because I'm so honest. Right. But I forgot, and I got out to the car, and I'm like, ooh, I just stole the scone. And you went back and paid for it. <laughs> I didn't pay for oh, it. So, so the Nordstrom yeah. thing that you were making up for. What? No, no. It's, it's a balance. It's well, Laura, about you're, balance. You're too honest to be interesting on a podcast, that's for sure. Um, if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Fuck you. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. Nice. Um, what would be what would be the thing you hear most coming out of my mouth? Yeah. Uh, probably be talking about. I work right now in a, uh, a company that has coffee, and the coffee sucks. So I tend to complain a lot about the coffee all day. So I'm always talking about how important coffee. Not is. your coffee business. No, not my coffee okay. business. No, that would different. be it's a totally problem different. with the coffee side. That would, that would, be, that would be an issue. Um, Just an office with bad coffee. Yeah, an office yeah. with bad coffee. I, I try and prescribe this thing where you try and go 24 hours without saying something negative or complaining. And wow. I, I know. And then, and then you, when you mess up, you've got to start all over again. And I try and do that once, a while, once in a great while. Like every, every week or two, I'll try and like do it. And the only time I remove it, if I drink coffee and it sucks, I feel like I'm allowed to talk about, it's like quality control more than just complaining. Sure. So coffee and saying the word fuck you are two big things in my life, yeah. Nice. John, thanks for doing this. This is a fun We're interview. done, that's it. It's, we don't, we are, we are kicked about. out, but we'd love to have you back. <laughs> uh, Let's come back and talk about ego. I have a whole, yeah, have a, for whole sure. a whole rambling monologue I can do about. Um, we'll just give you the mic, I'm gonna leave. And you can just go. She's heard the story. It's, it's uh, yeah. That, that, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, how should people find you? Oh, how do, oh, this is where I plug myself. Yeah. Huh? Um, I just probably Instagram is probably the easiest way if they want to see what what's going on in my head. And, um, a, and a, lot of, a lot of your writing's on Medium? My writing's on Medium. Yeah. Um, my blog, I, I write for a motorcycle blog called The Bullet. Oh, cool. Um, and it's spelled with two L's and two T's. I'm on Instagram as Johnny Lewis, which is what my friends back home call me. Um, I go by John, which is fine. You can call me John. The people who know me call me Johnny. Cool. Uh, and that's, yeah, uh, that's probably the simplest way to hook up with me. Right on, man. And if anybody out there has uh, bootleg Prince videos, then hit me up. So let's see. Oh, cool. And that was John Lewis on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it, I know I did. Make sure you hit us on iTunes with a five-star review. Hit us on Twitter, at Rebel Radio Net. Hit us on Facebook, at Rebel Radio Net. Tell us what's up. Tell us, um, you know what? We got our fifth year anniversary coming up. Rebel Radio's been on the show five years come this June. Love to hear your ideas about what we should do to celebrate. Should we have a party? Should we have a special guest? Should we have a party with a special guest? I don't know, it could be crazy. You tell me. Uh, let us know what you want to do. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.